Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of the Paris Agreement. And Richard, on the very day that you and I are recording this, we are hearing stirrings in the press, not yet confirmed, but a lot of rumors that the Trump administration may be withdrawing the United States from the Paris Accord on climate change entered into by the Obama administration towards the end of President Obama's tenure. This, of course, is a hotly contested issue and exposes a lot of the deeper disagreements around climate change. But why don't we start with sort of the building blocks? Why don't, why don't you just begin by giving our listeners a sense of what exactly the Paris Accord set out to do and how they set out to do it? Well, the Paris Accords are an extraordinarily ambitious arrangement with 150 or 160 nations in which what they're supposed to do is to commit themselves to target to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that's admitted from their various plants. In the United States, the number is about 24 to 26% less than the totals that were admitted in 2005. And this is a more dramatic number than it might seem because of the population increase within the middle um, in the interim. Uh, the Chinese um, and the Indians have committed themselves vaguely to do something by 2030, but they haven't told what it is. Other nations have committed to do something, but again, none of these things are actually binding. And then in addition to that, there are a series of elaborate transfer payments, which is supposed to compensate uh, carbon dioxide poor countries for the damage that they've suffered from the carbon dioxide that has been admitted by the other nations. It's a kind of a complicated calculation because that carbon dioxide has to be first proven to be harmful. And then to the extent that we produce goods efficiently that are sold to people elsewhere who don't have to produce it themselves, there's always the question as to whether or not the carbon load under the agreement should be transferred uh, from the United States or other developed nations to the nations who are received the thing. And, you know, many people are very, very upset about this. I put myself in this particular situation because they think that the unilateral nature of the commitments are extremely large on the United States in the short run and will have major dislocations on the way in which production has worked. And there's also a growing, I think, sense that the uh, fear that one has about uh, short-term dislocations from carbon dioxide production are overwrought. Uh, so it may well be and there are many people who believe this, I put myself basically amongst them, that at least at current levels, carbon dioxide emissions are a net plus rather than a net minus. And so the effort to try to curb them radically is basically removing a benefit rather than removing a, course, a curse. And this, of course, is very complicated because carbon dioxide at some level is essential to life. And at other levels, if it were got far too high, it could be very dangerous to everything. So the question is, where are we in that middle range? Are we on the good side or the bad side of the distribution. I think the better evidence suggests at the moment that we're on the good side of the distribution and what not to worry about it as much as we do. So you say carbon is probably a net plus instead of a net minus. That runs totally counter, Richard, to the science's settled rationale that we hear on a pretty regular basis from the kinds of people who are enthusiastic about the Paris Accords. Make that case for us. Well, I mean, first of all, anybody who says that the science is settled is obviously wildly over-mystic. There's only one proposition which is settled, and that's a proposition which says that if you increase the level of carbon dioxide under something known as Arrhenius' law, 
um, the increase of that will translate itself into an increase in temperature. Uh, but what the law says is, of course, very important. And the increase that takes place is not linear. It's by the log to the base 10. Uh, so that essentially, if you go from uh, 1 to 10, it's like going from 1 to 2 or 0 to 1. So it's a much smaller increase on the log scale than it is on the actual scale. And it turns out, so I've been told that the actual sensitivity of plants is not logarithmic, but it's to the square of the increase, which is a bigger number, uh, so that at least in the short run, it looks as though the plant increase is going to be more dramatic than the temperature increase. And there are recent studies which suggest that basically about 11% of the surface of the earth, not the water, but the surface of the earth, is greener now than it was 20 years ago because of the increase in the levels of carbon dioxide we've had. The second thing about the formula is it's multiplied by a sensitivity constant. And what that number is supposed to do is to say, well, if we double this thing and this, this coefficient, if it's big, it means that doubling is going to have a hugely dramatic temperature effect. But if it's smaller, then it's going to have less. The IPCC, the sort of Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change in 2007, had a very broad band of estimate from about 1.5 to 3.5. There have been a number of studies done lately. I can't vouch for their technical accuracy, which suggests that the number is likely to be between 0.8 on the one hand and, and 1.5 on the other, which of course is a huge reduction in terms of the amplitude of the overall effect. The second thing is you can't treat carbon dioxide as the sole driver of climate change. One of the things that we often forget is that water vapor is in fact a greenhouse gas and it's in very large concentrations. There's not much that you can do to change it. And unlike carbon dioxide, it's a much more variable and complicated kind of phenomenon. You could have cloudy days, sunny days, different climate changes over the long period. And so if it turns out that the water stuff accounts for a large degree of the variability that we've observed, uh, then the carbon dioxide changes may be a second tier player relative to the water vapor changes. So to give you a kind of simple-minded number, suppose you started with the assumption that water vapor explains 80% of the variability and carbon dioxide explains 20. Very simple calculation. Well, if you manage to reduce the carbon dioxide stuff by 10%, what you've done is you've taken the total figure and reduced it only by 2% uh, because the water vapor party is much more important and going from 20 to 18 on the temperature scale is not going to be very large. And indeed, some people have run estimates, I can't vouch for them, which suggest that if all the Paris Accords were put into place, the temperature increase would be something under two-tenths of a degree centigrade. And if that's the number, then you're spending billions and trillions of dollars in order to make a change in temperature, which is within the error bar. That is, when you actually try to measure what the temperature on the Earth is, this is not an easy thing to do. And generally, the best you can get, even with very good measurements, is plus or minus 0.2 from the actual number. Uh, so you're spending a huge amount of money to get some very little kind of approach on this. It's interesting when you read the blogs, most of the people who are on the anti-side as I am, they give you charts and tables and numbers and so forth. And the other side is mainly sort of, well, like the New York Times, the world's most irresponsible reporter on this issue. Everybody knows that climate change is going to flood Manhattan. It's going to create huge adverse events of one kind or another. It's going to lead to sweltering temperatures. 
No information whatsoever is to explain why that is true. Historically, we know that it is not true. In the last hundred years, major adverse events have been tilting slightly downward. The largest hurricane, if one cares about this, is still the Galveston hurricane of 1900. There was a recent study that was published by Greg Lindsay, Richard Lindzen, who's a uh, famous uh, climatologist at MIT. And if you go over the so-called Holocene period, which is about 11,000 years, what you do is you see carbon dioxide levels rising pretty consistently over this period and temperatures falling over the same period of time, which suggests that the water vapor or sunspots or something else is a much more powerful variable. Uh, so I've looked at this stuff long enough. I can't validate the calculation and so forth, but I've seen nothing on the other side uh, that matches the power and the precision and the amplitude of data uh, that you see saying that the carbon dioxide scare seems to be overrated. So as an intellectual exercise then, Richard, let's just, for the sake of conversation, defer to the notion, the New York Times notion, or or maybe a less overstated version of the New York Times notion, but we've got a genuine challenge that's posed by human-driven climate change from Corbyn. The rhetoric tends to conflate the consensus about what's going on with a consensus about how to respond. In other words, the implication is if you accept that carbon-driven climate change is a problem, then you must also almost by necessity uh, accept the need for things like the Paris Agreement or renewable energy mandates or cap-and-trade program, etc., etc. Even if you accept the scientific predicate of that argument, do those policy prescriptions naturally follow? Well, it's very difficult to figure out exactly what you do. There are so many particular sources of carbon dioxide. People, I think, emit about two pounds a day of the stuff. So if the population increases, if animal life increases, you're actually going to get some kind of an increase. Um, uh, The ability to put the tax on people is extremely difficult to do because people will shift off store. Uh, There are then compensating tax schemes, the one that was proposed by George Schultz and Jim Baker, uh, which most people who work at this thing regard as an absolute nightmare to try to implement. And what happens is if you try to impose carbon-based taxes on imports into the United States of goods that use um, productions coming from carbon dioxide, um, people will simply stay out of the United States and will be the loser or nobody will be able to measure it. Uh, The other thing is there's this huge fetish with respect to renewables, uh, solar energy on the one hand and wind power on the other. Uh, Right now, combined, they produce less than 1% of the total energy. And in fact, the effort to cap the coal on the one hand and the fracking on the other hand has increased the use of renewals, mainly wood, which of course is an extremely toxic form of stuff to produce. I looked at the figures on Germany. They're really utterly astounding. Uh, They've shut down their nuclear plant, which is old and obsolete. They're not in favor of fracking, so they burn dirty coal. And in fact, they burn 171 metric tons or millitons of this stuff and only four tons of the clean stuff. Uh, So it's a ratio of about 97 to 1. So they've increased the total amount of filth. The important thing to do is to recognize that this solar and wind technology isn't coming on for a very, very long period of time because you cannot store wind or sunlight in a bottle, whereas a lump of coal can heat you for a very long time. So it's absolutely imperative to burn the right 
right kind of coal and the right kind of plants to improve the fracking and so forth. Nuclear, I think, is pretty much off the table today. The old plants cannot be safely used. And the cost of fracking has gone way the world down relative to what it's been, even more rapidly than the cost of producing solar energy. But the myth that, you know, having these huge numbers of paddles on the ground and these windmills in the air has no adverse environmental effects is simply blinking at reality. You have to make these things. You have to maintain them. You have to ship them here, there, and the other place. And so I think that all of the efforts to shift the technology basis is going to be a failure. And even if you could shift it, which you cannot, uh, since these are highly unstable techniques, the moment you get above, say, 30%, um, and you're going to try to run the rest of the system on uh, these kinds of sources, you're going to have brownouts as a daily matter, which is going to produce all sorts of other kinds of reactions that are going to be a disaster. Uh, So what you really have to do is to essentially encourage the improvement in existing technologies. This is being done at an incredibly rapid rate by private capital, and to avoid the kind of foolish experiments that Ms. Merkel is doing in Germany, whereby shutting down her nuclear plants and burning dirty coal, she has increased the cost of energy in that country to its where, quote-unquote, a luxury good, and has managed to filthy up the environment, not only with carbon dioxide, which I don't much care about, but with all sorts of other real producing, nitrous oxide, sulfur dioxide, lots of other stuff, which in fact can kill people. So I think, in effect, that what you really have to do is to calm down and concentrate on technical improvements with existing sources These are going to produce immediate benefits today. Anything you try to do with respect to solar, if you cut out the subsidies, is going to have a trivial effect at a remote point in time. And it's just a waste of money because you have to discount very negligible future benefits to their current value where the effective number is about zero. Can you give us a sense of the legal landscape here? Explain why the president is empowered to unilaterally withdraw from this agreement without, for instance, consulting Congress. Well, what happened is you have to recall the very ersatz method that was used to get the Paris Accords into place, in which what happened is you didn't have it go through the Senate treaty, uh, but they kind of put it up there and they said, if you can get enough people to veto this thing, then you could stop it, which, of course, they could not. So it is technically speaking an executive agreement, and the gamble that the Obama administration took was that if they put it in as an executive agreement, it would be so embedded in the culture of the United States, the reliance issues would be so high that they'd kind of reverse it, but it's not going to happen. What's going to happen is the since it's not a treaty, um, the president can unilaterally change and take us out of it, and the argument that's being pressed upon him by people who actually know what's going on is saying the longer this thing goes on, the more awkward it's going to be, and if you hesitate like you've done on so many other things, it could well be that when you you turn out to leave office and a Democrat comes back in, they'll reaffirm the Paris Accords. And then what will happen is there'll be this endless uncertainty as to whether or not this executive commitment, which is not binding against the world, creates binding obligations in the United States, which private parties can enforce against the government and various sources of power plants and things that take place here. So getting it off the books and having a clean slate is really very, very important to clean up the legal position and to get us out of another potential regulatory and administrative and litigation nightmare. Last thing that I'll ask you, in the initial reaction to this decision or the suggestion that this decision might be coming, one of the big criticisms has been that this damages America's credibility overseas, that this is an agreement that has a lot of buy-in from around the world 
and the, the decision to drop out of it would alienate a lot of our allies internationally, especially in Europe. What do you make of that? Well, I think there's probably some truth to it. But the reason why you have to have Trump being more articulate than he is, is you've got to do this not on the assumption that, hey, we just don't like our responsibilities. You have to make the case that they're extreme, on extremely weak ground on everything that they're talking about. And so, you know, you want to figure out what you do. You say, look, if Trump puts himself in a bad position because he's linked the Paris Accords to all the free trade issues where he's generally speaking wrong. And what he should do is to kind of affirm the openness of American society to trade on both imports and exports so as to isolate this and then point out, look, you knew when we went in that it was this. We're not breaching any international obligation. We just think it's a mistake and we urge you to get out of it for the same reasons that we got out of this arrangement. There was a nice piece in the Wall Street Journal today by McMaster and Cohen, two of the saner people inside the administration, extremely able, and they sort of reinterpret what America first meant. It now means we cooperate with all our allies to the extent that they cooperate with us. Uh, so essentially, it's taking back everything that Steve Bannon said. And if you put it forward in that particular area and show that you're going to be cooperative on matters where they're mutual gain, you may be able to persuade people that they're wrong on the, on the carbon dioxide stuff. I regard this as becoming a scare. Uh, the word alarmist, which has been prefer- you know, commonly used, seems to me to become more and more accurate. The evidence is clearly moving in the opposite direction, and the shrillness on the other side seems to be getting greater. And I regard this as kind of a, uh, shall we say, a tragedy of the chattering classes inside the United States. Repeat, I am not a scientist, but you know, you try to read all of the stuff on both sides, and I don't think that the debate recently has been very close. I'm not counting people. I'm basically looking at arguments, and I think the arguments, both economic and in scientific for getting out of the Paris Accords are overwhelmingly strong. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you as always to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.